A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me your host Chloe Timms. This week I'm talking to Emma Denny about her romance novel One Night in Hartswood. Emma is a queer author of LGBT plus historical romance stories about yearning, swordplay and kissing in the woods. In 2021 she won the Mills and Boone Romance Includes Everyone competition. This is a really fascinating episode, not only because Emma got her book deal by successfully pitching it Mills and Boone for their Twitter-based competition, but also because she doesn't have an agent. We also discuss building a connection in slow burn romance between your characters, how fan fiction helped her rediscover her love of writing and find a community, and her tips for writing sex scenes. But first, here's Emma with an excerpt from One Night in Hartswood. Soon, Penn would need to return to the keep, creeping back into his own home like a criminal. He'd snake up the empty staircase, emerge from behind the tapestry, and fall into a bed that had never felt like his. And Raff would remain. Raff would stay in the woods, sharpening his knife, learning the land. He'd return to his lord's retinue with the rest of the servants. No doubt he'd be given some mead and meat to celebrate the noble marriage so far removed from his own life, and then they'd be off again to whichever northern kingdom he hailed from. He wasn't free, not really. No man was truly free, not when there were mouths to feed and families to keep and burdens to carry, both big and small. But when night fell he'd be on his way home, the wind on his back. He wouldn't be trapped. A bird, a thrush, Penn thought, began to sing from somewhere high above. It wasn't Raff that made him do it, not really. It wasn't his easy smile or his intense eyes or the broadness of his shoulders. It was what he had, a freedom that Penn was reaching for but could never take for himself. Perhaps he could take this. Just once. Just tonight. Just this morning, really, with the sun already threatening to rise. Penn turned and collided with Raff's chest. He hadn't realised how close Raff was standing. He stared into a pair of deep blue eyes. The air around them smelled of moss and rotting wood and blood. He shouldn't. He could be caught. He could be killed. Yet. There was no space at all between them. He surged forward, powered by adrenaline and grief, and crashed their lips together. There was a second where Raff didn't move, and Penn was doomed and then he was being pushed against a tree, the bark pressing into his back, his head knocking against the wood. Penn had shared furtive kisses in hidden corridors before, he'd shared them in these very woods, but their quickness had come with uncertainty, a gentle touch of lips that may need to part at any moment with little warning. This was not like those, it was rough and sure, and their lips moved like a fight. Raff's hand slid under the fabric of Penn's cloak, grasping at his tunic, the touch confident and desperate. The rough tree scraped Penn's back, but he didn't move away. He pushed back against Raff's lips, opening his mouth beneath the yearning movement. He gasped into the kiss as Raff licked into his mouth, hot and wet, trailing line of his bottom lip with his tongue. He shouldn't, but he wanted, urgent and without direction. 
His hands made their way to Raph's sides, bunching in his tunic, slipping beneath. There was a noise from behind, a rustle in the leaves, the sound of a heavy branch cracking. Raph stilled. He pulled back. We're not alone. It was barely even a whisper. Pen's insides curled. What? Run. What? Run! Hi Emma, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, One Night in Hartswood. Hello, thank you very much for having me. So could you start by telling us what One Night in Hartswood is about? Um, so on the most basic level, I'd say One Night in Hartswood is about why making out with a mysterious guy in the forest the night before your arranged marriage isn't a super good idea. And then why it's an even worse idea to run away with him and then fall in love with him. That's even worse. Also, it's about the story of Penn and Raph. Penn is the son of a rather formidable earl who has been uh, arranged to be married, married to a woman he's never met. And he doesn't particularly want to marry her. Um, he wants to be able to go off and do his own thing. He wants his own life. And it doesn't help matters that he's also never been particularly interested in women. He, the night before the wedding, goes off for one last night in the forest that surrounds his father's keep, just for a final snatch of freedom, where he meets Raph, who is a very intriguing and handsome man, who he assumes at first is a hunter or a tracker, with his coming with a lord for the wedding. Um, they meet, they talk, they have a very passionate kiss, and then they have to leave again. And the next morning, Penn decides that he's not going to do what his father wants, he's going to leave. He runs away, uh, is in completely inca- incapable. He is not very good at surviving in the wilderness. And once again, he runs into Raph, who offers his help to get him away. Uh, unfortunately, what Penn doesn't know is that Raph is the brother of the woman that Penn was supposed to be marrying. So... You know, as can be expected with these sorts of books, things things go awry. <laughs> yes, it's the perfect setup because as a reader, we know the kind of the structure and the relationships between the characters that they do not find out for quite a while in the book. I wanted yeah. to ask you about your kind of general inspiration because I get the sense that Raph and Penn's love story was the driving force for the rest of the story. But I wondered whether that was the case? Did it start with them? Or what What was the kind of early spark for you? I mean, yeah, it was always a love story. I write romance, I read romance, that's pretty much all I do. Um, so it was always the romance of it was more important to me than literally everything else. It's not a historical novel with romance in it, it's a romance novel which happens to be set in the past. So for me, the first part of it was more the idea of this guy who at the time was just a guy in my head who runs away from his own marriage only to find himself with someone who is related to that marriage in some way. Um, When I was first envisioning it I wasn't entirely sure if it was going to be alternate history or fantasy or traditional just straight history so there was a little bit of kind of dithering when I was deciding how that would go. At one point it was that the guy he meets in the forest is the fiancé Um, in a kind of alt history way where queer marriage was allowed and then I decided to go with the standard standard historical which made everything a little bit more complicated so then I kind of it was him as the brother I think worked really well and it added a lot more layers Mm. to the story about betrayal and loyalty and things like that yeah there's a lot more jeopardy as well because like like we said 
as the reader, you know, you know that, um, you know, they're, they're going to find out at some point that this is a big problem, um, but the characters don't know. So we're waiting for that moment, that big reveal as well. Yeah, that's my favourite thing with any, especially with romance novels, I think, when their split point of view is when in the early chapters we get an introduction and someone will mention another character in a disparaging way, often is my favourite. And then the next chapter or the next scene is in the other character's point of view and you go, oh, I see what's going to happen here. There's a bit at the end of Raph's first scene, which is the first scene in the book, where they are talking about this unknown man they're all riding towards and this wedding his sister is going to have to be a part of and she doesn't want to get married either. And they're all discussing, you know, what it is they're heading towards. And Raph's section ends with him wondering what sort of man this this William, which is Penn's given name, is and what he's going to be like. And then obviously we cut to Penn's point of view and it is that sort of thing I love. Um, there's another one a little bit later where he's kind of musing on how he hopes his sister's fiance is tolerable so they can have a good conversation. And he doesn't have to stress about not getting along with him. And in editing, I was every time I read that line, I was like, ah, yes, he, I'm sure you'll find him very <laughs> tolerable, Raph. I'm sure you will. <laughs> yeah, it's that knowing thing. And I think as a reader, because, you know, the whole idea is them falling in love. It's that satisfying thing of being like, I know something you don't know. And yeah, it's it's kind of fun because you're you're waiting. And I have to say, Emma, you make your readers wait and wait. I mean, of course, there's this kiss at the beginning, um, which is the perfect setup for the for the novel, because I mean you it's treated as a little bit of a tease as what as what's to come. Yeah, you make your readers wait. It's a real slow burn of a novel. Was there any ever a point where you were kind of like Oh, do I put a kiss in earlier or do I make them sleep together earlier? Or were you quite happy to kind of delay that satisfaction? Honestly, there are a few parts where I was like, oh, should I push this further back? Because I really wanted to get that balance right between really dragging it out. I wanted it to be at the point where it's unbearable, where you are going, just kiss already. Just get it <laughs> over with. We both, we all know it's going to happen. So just do it. Um, in fact, it happened sooner in the original draft and then I added a whole two chapters as I was going through and pushed it back even further and it was it is it is tricky kind of finding that balance to make it not drag Mm. Um, because you don't want to be frustrated you want to be egging them on um and I think I think I got it but and it is in the end that the the release happens about almost exactly halfway through the book I read it as a pdf and literally like halfway through when my cursor was I was like halfway through bang on you know um but one thing you do one thing you did do which helps make it well it's in my opinion I love a slow burn and I didn't find it dragged at all it what what was very satisfying is that it's not just the kind of physical intimacy that escalates it's an emotional connection between them as well and you obviously have to do a lot of work making sure that by by the point that they do get together they are so close in both ways. Yeah, I really wanted to make it so it was it wasn't just uh, them kind of giving in to lust, and I think they both attempt to pretend that's all it is, uh, but it's not. And I wanted to really kind of emphasize that they are they do get on with each other. They are friends first. They you know enjoy spending time together because I think 
you know, while a good kind of enemies to lovers is fun, for me personally, I find it more satisfying when it is a couple who feel like they genuinely like each other. I find that really important because we have a lot of, and I think this is, you get this a lot on TV or movies where the kind of the impetus for a couple getting together is like, oh, they're both pretty and they're next to each other. They're madly in love. And it's like, do they even like each other? Are they, are they friends? Do they do they know what each other's favourite food is? And it's important to me to kind of make sure that we see that these people genuinely have a connection, even if that is, you know, quote unquote, just friendship uh, before anything actually happens. As we've mentioned, friends to lovers, or not friends to lovers, sorry, enemies to lovers. Um, and we're on the subject of tropes. And I know kind of there are so many great kind of romantic tropes. And one line in the novel, which I thought perfectly encapsulated the kind of one of the dilemmas of the novel as such was he'd escaped a wife he didn't want and ran straight into the arms of her brother. Uh, so I was wondering whether you kind of, when you were kind of picturing the story or maybe planning, I don't know how much of a planner you are, were you thinking kind of consciously of things that you enjoy in a romance, tropes that you enjoy, or was it guided more by the characters themselves? I found it was a bit of both. Uh, there's a lot of tropes in there which are just in there because I like them. Things like cuddling for warmth, dagger training, that sort of thing. I love it. Um, so it just kind of felt very natural. It just happened with the story as the story progressed. I didn't really sit down and say, right, I want to have this thing here. Apart from the bed sharing scene, which was very much, I wanted them to share a proper bed at least once. There was only one bed. What do we do? And then in editing, the majority of the, oh, no, there's only one bed actual dynamic and the drama of that got completely cut. But I still wanted to have it in there. But everything else kind of just came about naturally, really. There was one, I love a bathing scene. Everybody says I always have bathing scenes, which is true. Um, and I added one into this one. And that was purely practical because I was like, I know what's coming. And they're both really stinky and that would <laughs> do. So that one was, uh, it was a trope I really loved, but also it was there for practical purposes. Well, I'm glad that you gave that some thought. <laughs> so talk to us again a little bit more about this opening, well, not opening, but there's the scene where they first meet, because obviously those first meetings, the meet cute or whatever you want to call them, are so important to a romance. And this kind of forbidden kiss that they share in the woods is a, it really, really sets up how things will eventually be between them because it's not just, like you say, it's not just lust. It is more about this deeper connection that they have. So what were you kind of trying to create in this first meeting between them? I think there was a, a few things, really. Um, it's, you, you said about the meet-cute, and I have a lot of people say, you know, I really enjoyed their meet-cute. And in my head, it's not really a meet-cute. It's not cute at all. It's... Um, quite traumatic isn't it, it? they're both going yeah they're both going through a really difficult time and it's an escape for them to go into the woods yeah they they meet over a deer that they found that's been snared and it's very quite it's quite dark as they have to decide what they're going to do if to to kill or spare the deer and um and then they kind of go on from there and for me i kind of think that set the tone for for a lot of the relationship really is that it is this choice that they're both making and there is a danger to it it's not just ooh, happy happy there is like a sense of danger and there's a few bits in that very first meeting which kind of resonate 
in the rest of the book, which I'm not going to go into too much detail on because it is probably huge spoilers. <laughs> but there is, I think Raph says something along the lines of how the deer would have died, whether they'd freed her or whether they left her trapped. And I think that works as as a kind of a metaphor for Penn's story as a whole. Mm. You know, he he had to escape because he didn't have another choice. And he kind of accepted that running away might end badly for him. And that, you know, and whatever he would have done, he would have had, it would have been bad. Mm. Um, so I kind of, I wanted it to set up this sense of danger, but I also wanted it to make, be, be obvious that they, they do have a kind of connection. They are, they're very different, but they've got some similarities as well. And I wanted it, especially the kiss to be less about, oh, wow, this guy is so hot, I can't resist, and more about a kind of reaching for something. Mm. Like, at this point, Penn doesn't think he's ever going to see him again. He doesn't. He's not really thinking. He doesn't really care. He just, you know, wants to be free. And I think that's what the kiss is about at this stage. It's more him trying to take something that he can't have. Um, and then as they grow closer, it's more about Raph. Yeah. One thing I think, even in this meeting scene that you do so well, is their dialogue together. And it's so full of chemistry. And of course, that is that is the ultimate thing that you want in a romance. You want the sparks to be flying in the dialogue. So how do you go about writing then this effective and sometimes flirty dialogue? Obviously, a lot of the time it's more than flirting. It's, it's going on a deeper level. But how did you manage to create their voices and in sort of find this chemistry in their dialogue? I think a lot of it comes through the more you write, the more you kind of find their voices. At first, it felt very standard, like, okay, we know that Raph is a tracker, we know he's practical, we know he's very loyal to his family, we know that he's bad with people, so his dialogue reflects that, and Penn is more dreamy, he's a little bit flighty, he is kind of cynical, and so that should be coming across. And then you kind of start with these building blocks. And then the more you write them, the more they kind of become their own voices, which completely take over. And it is, I think a lot of it is just practicing them being together and writing those scenes and stuff and, and figuring out how they fit together and making sure that you know what you want the dialogue to achieve. There's a bit about, about a third of the way through, maybe, where they're kind of teasing each other about how cold it is. And I really wanted to make sure there was moments like that where they are just kind of having a chat, having a bit of a laugh, and they're kind of teasing each other, but there's fondness there as well. And I think that's... And I think that can be really tricky to achieve because a lot of people do banter. Mm. And they're like, oh, it's just banter. But it just sounds mean. And it's you need to kind of have that sense that these people are teasing each other but they're it's fine it's friendly teasing and they both know that um but it is I think it is just kind of letting them take take you along and seeing where they go so did you do a lot of kind of writing that didn't end up making the book where you were just kind of practicing or trying out their voices where you were just maybe imagining scenes and having them chat um or did you find that you were by the point you were writing, you were already quite focused about their characters and how they would speak to each other and what their kind of dynamic would be. Um, I found 
it, it definitely happened more as I was writing them. Um, I started off and they were both just kind of characters. And then the more I wrote, the more I essentially became obsessed with them. <laughs> um, and it's and there was an awful lot more that got cut. It was very, very long. Um, and there's a lot that I wrote just just like little snippets of them together, um, which was never going to be part of the book. There was stuff I wrote thinking about different scenarios for them. I wrote quite a bit of them if it was modern, if it was like 2021 rather than 1360 and that sort of thing. And I got to the point where I still am now, really, where I was kind of in a one-man fandom sort of space. <laughs> um, and it would be, this This is all I was thinking about, was them. And, it, and I found that kind of built towards writing their voices more so. So it would be thinking about them in just in various scenarios. It's the modern time and they go to a zoo, what happens? That sort of thing, um, which is very much how people approach fandom in my experience um so it was it, it got to the point where they were so important to me and I was thinking about them so much that the dialogue just came really naturally and really easily because they're just taken over mm. yeah almost as if like you say they were an existing piece of fandom that you were kind of writing fan fiction for because you'd become so invested in their relationship and the way they speak yeah exactly it was like because I've been in kind of fandom spaces for a really long time now um and so and I could kind of see the way I was interacting with them always was the same way I would interact with whatever media it was I was obsessed with at the time um coming up with AUs and things and just thinking about them and I think and that really did help the writing process I found like a few times I would be thinking about something completely nonsensical and unrelated and I'd go, oh, that has made me realise that there's a hole in the plot that I need to fix or this has made me have a realisation about this person's character arc which I need to make sure is reflected in in the actual text. So it was, yeah, it, it helped mm. um, make the final thing stronger, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm guessing from this you've you've kind of been writing fan fiction for a long time and so have I and that's kind of how I I mean I, I've been writing since I was a kid but I am um, I think a lot of writers well maybe they don't all admit it but a lot of us cut their teeth writing fanfic and there's a snobbery around it but it's so good for practicing and also getting feedback and finding kind of how to construct a story and what you like writing and so I think there's you know, basically, I think we should all write more fanfic. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's invaluable. It is. It's such fun. I think for me, especially after finishing uni and being completely disenchanted with writing, fanfic was the thing that made me care again. Um, and without, you know, and this this was years ago, I've gone through several fandoms since I started writing. And I did start writing fanfic quite late. Like most of my mates were like, oh, yeah, I started when I was 14 and I was 25, I think. And going through all these fandoms and writing all this fanfic. And I can say, honestly, without having all of that, I wouldn't be where I am now. I wouldn't have loved writing again. I'd have stayed grumpy and cynical and I wouldn't have tried. Um, so it is. it did make a big difference. And it was the community as well of people who kind of sprung up around it 
that really helped because you need that support and it's lovely having you know your friends and your family being like oh yeah you could write a book but they don't know what writing is like (laughs) they don't know how hard it is and how it's the worst thing and it's also the best thing but having a little community around you who are both going to praise you and support you and tell you when you're writing absolute nonsense is like the most valuable thing yeah absolutely and I know just before we started recording we were speaking and you said that you went to uni and studied English and creative writing and lost a little bit of love for writing and kind of creativity I guess so um like you said the writing for fun and writing fanfic was a way of reconnecting with your creativity and enjoying writing because I think sometimes when you're in an academic setting and particularly on courses where I've spoken to another writer who said that she felt like when she was doing creative writing as a course, the focus was very much, you have to be a literary writer. There was less focus on genre and fun and romance. And obviously when you're writing for yourself or you're writing fanfic for an audience, most people are after the romance. Yeah, this was absolutely it. Writing at uni felt very much like you only were taken seriously if you were a litfic writer. It had to be grand and making a big statement and things like that. And I think this is why I fell into screenwriting because the screenwriting tutors were very more, they were more practical. They were more, you can write what you want. And I imagine to a certain extent, there's probably something to do with, you know, popularity and money in that, that a big popular script is going to likely be make more money than uh, literary fiction might do. Um, but it was, it was very freeing. Um, I remember one term we had a writer I think he was sort of in residence and he was, I feel, I'm not going to name him because it probably will give away where I went to uni, but he is a fairly known name in sci-fi and fantasy. And he was there for a few weeks and it was, I didn't have any sessions with him. I didn't have any lectures or seminars, but just knowing that he was part of the team was great because it made me realise, you know, there is a space in this which for people who don't necessarily write like literary fiction um but it still took me years after graduation to get back so one thing I wanted to touch on which I imagine kind of plays into the kind of writing fanfic as well is writing sex basically and I wondered I think your novel is a great example of very intimate and tender and well-written sex scenes so what advice do you have for anyone who is trying to write or thinking about writing kind of more explicit sex scenes well first of all thank you very much writing sex scenes is so hard it's really hard um everyone I speak to says that it's the hardest part to write um and I think honestly the only way to get good at writing sex scenes is to write a lot of sex scenes you need to, you know, think about what makes it work, read a lot of them, write a lot of them, play with it. I think it, it can be difficult for some people to get into it because it can be quite, it feels quite scary. Like you've not, if you've not done it before, it can be quite intimidating and it's hard to know if it works or if it just sounds clumsy. So I think, honestly, I think find a find a fandom you like, find a couple you can become obsessed with and then write half a million words of them doing it <laughs> and post it online <laughs> and then and then it gets easier I, I find and I think it, it it's good to go to go into it knowing 
what you want to come out of the sex scene you know like every scene in a book what does it achieve what what comes after it what's happening in this scene that's not explicitly in the text um and that sort of thing but it is also you know practice because on a really mechanical level they're really tricky it's like writing fight scenes there's a lot of limbs and you forget whose is whose especially when they've got the same pronouns it can get complicated (laughs) so I think yeah practice and also finding someone who you can trust to read it um because if you've spent three hours writing one 1000 word sex scene you will be blind to to it if it's good if it's anything if it's just like two bricks rubbing against each other so getting someone else to look at it with a fresh pair of eyes is extremely useful yeah absolutely so I saw an interview that you gave where I think it was when you won the uh, Mills and Boone competition where you talked about the importance of queer representation in romance and how the kind of trials and tribulations and dilemmas of the story deserve to be more than just related to sexuality. So more than just homophobia or kind of people struggling with their identity. Can you share, maybe hopefully without spoilers, how this features in your novel? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Yeah, so for me, I always felt kind of, I didn't want it to necessarily be we cannot be together because we are two men. It felt kind of, that's not why I'm here kind of thing. And I think there is a space for stories like that. And I think they're really important, but I also think we need somewhere that's not the point 
of the book. Um, so for me, I've seen a lot of people describing it as like a forbidden romance, and it was important that the forbiddenness isn't because they're both guys, the forbiddenness comes because they're both idiots. Like, they really want to be together, but they're so worried about the the wider implications of it. Like, Penn is worried that Raph doesn't actually like him like that, and, that, and he's terrified of the rejection, and Raph is extremely aware of the fact that he's lying to Penn and doesn't want to hold power over him and doesn't want to uh, have a power imbalance in their relationship. And so that is the main thing that's keeping them apart. And this ongoing sense of Penn needs to escape and he needs to be safe. And I think that was the, that's the driving force for it. Like Raph's motivation is making sure that Penn is safe rather than he desperately wants to get with him. So I think that was important, that that was kind of the forbiddenness of it is they're forbidding themselves more so than anybody else. Like there's a couple scenes with Raph's family where you definitely see how it's not the, the, the driving force stopping them is mostly Raph himself. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully without giving too much away, I would say that Raph's family are not surprised or opposed as such. Um, certainly his siblings, which again gives you the, gives you the sense that again the the focus is the romance and the the joy of their love story and also that like you say the things that are stopping them being together are nothing to do with kind of what you might imagine might have been reality for some people in those times you're not you're not reading a story where you're you're thinking they're going to be kind of hunted down for their sexuality it's it's totally a focus on them as people rather than that maybe society's feelings towards them yeah exactly that's kind of what i wanted to do and it's hard doing that for historicals because the past in general terrible mm. and it but it is you know there have been queer people since forever um and, and it is hard as well with like something that's medieval because the understanding of sexuality and gender has changed so much since then and their ideas of it were so different to ours that i think even trying to define it by a modern standard just isn't going to work anyway mm. um, which makes the whole thing slightly trickier to pin down so I'd love to talk about how this book came to be and how it was published because you won a brilliant competition which was run by Mills and Boone and the competition was called Romance Includes Everyone um, which was to launch a romance novel uh, featuring LGBTQI plus characters so can you tell us about the competition, how you entered, how you discovered it? Did you have the novel idea before you entered? Was the book written for the competition? Tell us all about the competition and how you came to win. Um, so I saw the, I can't remember where I saw it now. I think I saw a tweet from Mills and Boone about it. Um, and I posted it on my blog and was like, hey, look, if you're in the UK, Mills and Boone doing a thing, you should go have a look. And I kind of didn't really think about it I was like this is there's never gonna happen um I had the idea for Hartswood in my head at that point I've been thinking over it for a while it was one of those ones I kind of turned over and then put back on the shelf and kind of forgotten about really in a at some point I'm gonna pick this back up and turn it into a real thing and it's gonna be great but right now I'm not doing that and then I kind of came back to it and one of my friends very much convinced me to stop sabotaging myself and to just go for it and she basically gave me the kick I needed so the actual competition itself was a pitch so you tweeted 
using the hashtag to Mills and Boone, uh, two tweets that summed up the the novel. Um, and then if they liked it, you sent them the first chapter. And then if they liked that, then you sent them the whole manuscript. Um, so at the time, because it was something I'd started and put down and picked up and then put down again, it wasn't finished. Um, it was very much not finished. So once I got the email saying, this is great, we'd like to have the rest of the manuscript, it was panic mode um, because it needed to be finished. Um, and I did do it. I managed it. It was a lot of work, um, but I managed it, sent it off and then waited forever <laughs> to hear back. And it, I mean, it wasn't even that long. It just felt like forever. Um and then I got the email saying that I'd won and I shouted so loud that my housemate came running downstairs to make sure I wasn't being horribly murdered. And then it just all kind of went from there. Like the competition was uh, for an ebook uh, contract. And obviously it's now the, the, the finished thing is oh, quite a lot more than that. It has been a complete roller coaster, uh, having no publishing experience whatsoever going into this. It's, I've had no idea what to expect and they've been the team has been super lovely and they've been so supportive with me panicking about hugely inconsequential things constantly and it has it has been great it's been a real learning experience it's been exhausting but in a good way yeah because you entered this competition you had twitter and you'd seen the tweet and you kind of entered it on a bit of a whim but you didn't it wasn't like you had loads of kind of writing friends on Twitter or you weren't like members of any writing groups on Twitter or knew any other kind of um, aspiring writers or debuts or anything like that. So the whole thing has been completely new and kind of you going out there on your own to do this. So how has that been? Because I imagine, I mean, anyone who's ever gone through the process is no knows how weird and roller coaster like it is so what has it been like for you to kind of experience it 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 has been really weird I found a lot of learning about the process has happened after winning the competition because and I think this is probably a trap a lot of writers fall into of I cannot possibly write until I've done all these things it's and especially at the moment there's a the pressure to have a presence everywhere you want to be on Twitter and TikTok and Instagram you want to have a brand and I had none of those things I had uh Twitter with like 10 followers, which I'd set up knowing that if I wanted to get published, I'd need to have a Twitter presence. But because of life and being busy, I hadn't really ever had time to properly curate that at all. It was just kind of there. And so I wasn't a part of any kind of online publishing communities or in the querying trenches. I just was there. So it has been really strange because I've kind of come at it from a different direction to a lot of people. And it does, it is odd because you kind of see a lot of these really tight communities and you're like, oh, it's lovely. And it's great that they exist, but it's also very weird not being in one either. After you won the competition, did you then go on to get an agent? Did Have you got, I don't know whether you have an agent. How did, how did that work? Um, I don't. I okay. After I won the competition, I reached out to the Society of Authors, basically because I had I was unagented, no experience. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't everything was fine. And it was, of course, Mills and Boone are wonderful. And I basically said to them, What would you recommend I do? At this point, should I be sitting down and looking for an agent? And they and I kind of I spoke to them a little bit and I spoke to my editor and the publishers. And right now I'm not looking for an agent, maybe in the future. 
but right now I'm unagented and I'm happy to remain so <laughs> at least for a little bit um and then we'll go from there cool I haven't heard it kind of happen well I have have heard it happen that way around but uh it's unusual but there are so many unusual routes to be published and get an agent not have an agent get a book deal and all those sorts of things that it's fascinating to hear other kind of routes to publication yeah it's extremely unusual um (laughs) definitely my route is not typical I would say um I don't want anyone to think that you can just do a tweet and then get a hardback published it is not normally this simple (laughs) um but yeah so I think I did I have been kind of looking at agencies but for now it's not something that I feel I need Hmm. and I think this is the important part I think it's very much judging what you need, what you want, what you know you need, um, if you're doing trad or self-published, that sort of thing. Um, and I think reaching out to someone like the Society of Authors, someone who knows what they're talking about, is extremely useful. Yeah, Because absolutely. you can look it up till the cows come home and everyone will give you a different answer and it's just complicated and unhelpful. Yeah, I mean, particularly because, I mean, we all know Mills and Boone, but there are publishers out there that are um scammy and you know vanity publishers who basically just want to take your money so it's always really important to get kind of professional advice yeah absolutely ask you a little bit more about Mills and Boone because my understanding of them or knowledge I guess is that kind of cliche knowledge of them writing the kind of bonk buster type books that you would see um everywhere and I know they have one of their kind of conventions is a happily ever after so I was wondering was there anything else that your editor kind of influenced in terms of the story or were they very I know they've modernized a lot I think probably a lot of people have very like 1980s versions of Mills and Boons in their mind but um was there anything that your editor kind of wanted you to include in the novel were they pretty much like Emma do your thing um they very much were Emma do your thing um they were very trusting with me which was really wonderful there were a few bits where we kind of discussed uh, parts that needed speeding up, parts that needed slowing down, parts that needed a little bit more action, that sort of thing, but nothing huge. Um, there, there were some like tonally things where you think this might not necessarily work for a Mills and Moon audience. And I think the finished novel is stronger for for them at this point. Um, and I think the, ha- the happily ever after really kind of went in knowing it's got to have a happily ever after and I wouldn't have it any other way. Um there's nothing worse than reading what you think is a romance novel or is a romance novel, and then you get blindsided at the very end. I've had I read one once where it was fine, happily ever after, and then in the epilogue, everybody died. And I was like, what? This is the epilogue. This is sacred. What are you doing? But it, they have it has been really great uh, working with them, and they are like making amazing steps at the moment and getting more inclusive with writers of colour and LGBT authors like myself. And it is it is really fantastic. And it is, I know Mills and Boone tends to have a bit of a, a, a stereotype of the books you kind of stole from your mum or your nana when you were 15 and you read possibly then you shouldn't have read them and oh, it's a fun, dirty little secret. But they are really kind of pushing the boat out now and it is fantastic to see. They are really wonderful to work with. Yeah, absolutely. And the competition that you won is a, a sure sign of the, the steps that they're taking to diversify not only their authors, but the stories that they tell as well. What was it about your pitch, do you think, that kind of captured the judges' attention? I think uh, it was probably quite unusual 
um, being a historical. Um, I think most of the other ones, I didn't, there were a lot, so I can't really tell uh, too much, but I think most of them were modern, but just contemporary romance, and mine wasn't, which was a bit more, a bit, a bit weird, um, probably a bit like, oh, I'm intrigued. I, I couldn't say for certain <laughs> what they liked about it. I have been told that they really liked it the first chapter when they got that. But I think, you know, it comes down to things like characters and writing style and things like that. But I think, I, I imagine it was a little bit of a weird one of having the kind of book, arranged marriage trope essentially inverted and stuff. So it was probably a bit, a, a bit eye-catching. Yeah, definitely. You've definitely tapped in something unique there for your premise. So finally, are you able to tell us if you are working on anything new at the moment? Uh, I am. I'm kind of plugging away I've always got many things on I've always got new ideas I'm always jumping awake at 1am going oh my god I should write this down and then thinking no I'll remember and then being like no actually I absolutely will not remember and having to get up and type it out at one o'clock in the morning and there is I've got I'm kind of working on a few things nothing that I can talk about yet but I am working on a few things kind of getting there (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is the hard thing trying to write while also being a debut and having a new book out is is a lot yeah absolutely <laughs> it, it's a lot of mental energy not checking reviews so <laughs> and also yeah. being asked questions about something that you wrote a long time ago <laughs> well I find it's I you know I'm still so attached to them that it is it's very easy I feel and I just listened to the audiobook so it's all fresh in there still. It is incredible, by the way. I feel like this is a terribly shameless plug, but the audiobook is fantastic. Um, <laughs> they let me sit in to the recording. Oh, wow. I've never done before. I had no idea what to expect. And I was so nervous. And it's narrated by two guys, Tom Alexander and Sebastian Humphreys. And they are fantastic. So we've got a, a narrator for Penn and a narrator for Raph. And ah, oh, they are wonderful. I listened to it when they sent me the files and I sent so many screaming messages to my friends going, oh my God, they're just so good. <laughs> um, so yes, I feel like it's terrible of me to be like, oh no, you should all listen to the audiobook. But it's so good. It made me cry. I sat on the floor and cried once I finished it. Well, now that, that after that pitch, I'm going to go <laughs> and, uh, check out the audiobook myself. So I'm going to recommend everyone does the same. Emma, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You're very welcome. That was Emma Denny talking about her romance novel, One Night in Hartswood, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. <laughs>